0: Just a quick reminder, the views of our guests are not necessarily those of their employers. We hope you enjoy the show anyways.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Sarah Feenan and I'm hosting the show today while Simon has taken a well-deserved holiday. So today we bring you Laps A Plenty, Tech Giants Get Blockchain In and G20. I am here in the 11FS offices in WeWork, Oldgate in London, and I'm joined remotely by the one and only Colin Platt, who's back in France. How are you, Colin?
0: I'm doing fantastic. Uh, You know, we're missing Simon, but I think we'll make do today.
1: Great. And I'm not alone in the 11FS offices here today. We've got, of course, the fantastic production team. I'm also joined by a guest today, Anthony Macy, who is the blockchain strategy lead at BNY Mellon. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thanks a lot, Sarah. So before we get started, Colin just wants to say a quick word about one of our sponsors.
0: Blockchain Insider is brought to you this week by Consensus. I've met many members of the diverse Consensus team, and I can tell you truly some of the best and top blockchain entrepreneurs, experts, computer science designers, engineers, business developers, including Aji Tripathi at their company. Consensus has over 700 people across six continents. I checked, none of them are Antarctica, who are developing tools and infrastructure to enable the decentralized future built on top of Ethereum, the most advanced blockchain development platform in the world, world, world. The decentralized applications they're building are focused on world-changing ideas like creating a system for self-sovereign identity, supply chain asset tracking on the blockchain, developing a more efficient electricity provider, I need one of those, and much, much more. So listeners, why continue to build the systems of today, 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 when you can build the future on the blockchain? Consensus is actively hiring talented individuals across all roles, geographies, to help build the decentralized web. Learn more about Consensus projects and job openings at consensus.net slash blockchain insider. That's consensus, C-O-N-S-E-N-S-Y-S dot net slash blockchain insider. If you can't spell the last one, why are you listening to us?
1: So let's take a look at this week's top stories. This first one is from Bloomberg. R3 CEO says blockchain is a once in a generation opportunity for financial markets. And there's a great quote in the article. There is a reason for Bitcoin and possibly even Ethereum to exist. But a majority of these other cryptocurrencies, I don't think, even have a reason to exist. So Colin, why don't you talk us through that one?
0: I think David Rudder said a lot of things that we've been talking about. I mean, it's really interesting that um, in this uh, particular segment on Bloomberg, they were actually asking him a lot about what he's doing as a company, which obviously does not involve cryptocurrencies. Um, and he was talking about, you know, why people start to understand what's going on, that it's at, at the board level, and we're going to start to see things happen. And it is quite dramatic changes. But all these guys at Bloomberg wanted to talk about was what the price of Bitcoin should be. Um, so, uh, you know, well done on, on David Rudder. we were a big fan of David Rudder. Uh, great interview on the, on the show. And uh, good luck here. I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, but I guess the question is,
2: so first of all, there's the volatility point, right? And that's why everyone's excited because investment bankers like to make money and they can see the possibility of making money in the volatility of the crypto. But is blockchain really a once in a generation thing? Yes and no. I think it's more, it's a case of the financial markets have had to respond because they haven't been given a choice this time. Um, And I think that's probably the bigger issue here where any incumbent has the ability where they can ignore emerging tech, then they'll ignore it because where's the value in actually changing? Um, I think this time they've actually been given a bit of a kick up the arse and said, "Ah, should probably pay attention to this.
1: Yeah, sure. And lots of banks and financial institutions have spent a lot of a lot of money adhering to regulatory requirements over the last few years. And a lot of it does come down to uh, greater transparency and greater security. And those are the kind of things that blockchain naturally solves. So you can see why blockchain would be appealing for them as uh, certainly a way to make their operations more efficient. I mean, the,
2: the regulatory compliance thing is a big one. And um, yes, blockchain does potentially solve some of that. Um, It's whether or not it solves it in a way in in which it needs to be solved. Mm. And I think that's kind of a common question that enterprises are really kind of talking about. You know, yeah, we could use blockchain, but do we really have to? And where those circumstances where it does make sense to do it, should we? Um, And that's, I think, where you start to visit cryptocurrencies a little bit and see what's going out in the wider world. What what problems are really emerging there that are being solved or trying to be solved by cryptocurrencies? Not necessarily in an effective way, um, but, you know, there's clearly that appetite out there.
1: Yeah. And the, uh, in addition, the, the large financial institutions, they are the incumbents and they are working along a business model trajectory that's been going on for hundreds of years. Whereas we now, we now see what was started by Bitcoin and then propagated by Ethereum and many of the other altcoins. You, you see these different business models emerging. And I think that's a really important thing for financial services institutions to take up and well, take a look at and wake up. Great. So our next story today is from finance magnates. Deutsche Börse and HQLAX are to build securities lending platform on blockchain. So in a bid to create a blockchain-based securities lending solution, Deutsche Börse Group entered into a strategic partnership with HQLAX. And according to the partnership agreement, the two organizations will use R3's Corda blockchain platform to build a fully integrated front-to-back operating model to facilitate a more efficient collateral management of high-quality liquid assets. Well, that is a long sentence there. So, Colin, can you give us a little background about that?
0: We talked about the story a while ago. Um, HQLAX is uh, a, a company that's building what they call Cord apps on top of uh, the Corda network. They were actually moving securities between two banks inside of Corda. Which is, um, you know, kind of going against what everybody's been talking about—that none of these things are, are working and these things are live. So it's really interesting to see that they're doing a play that isn't just about saving costs, which is a great thing you can do with these DLTs, but they're also talking about saving. The amount of capital you need to put up against something. and This is really important for banks who are not just constrained by the actual cost of doing a transaction, but how much capital they need to put up against stuff. Um, Deutsche Börse, for those that don't know, is one of the biggest exchange groups on the planet, uh, based out of Germany, do lots of things like the eurix ex- derivatives exchange. If we can actually start moving liquid collateral, what we're talking about is things like German bonds or Dutch government bonds, not um, corporate bonds. We can start paying each other much quicker and reduce that capital cost and do what they call collateral management. Um, fantastic to see that market infrastructure groups like Deutsche Börse have moved from the sidelines where they're talking about you know standards and the technology to actually how do we use this thing to employ something that is useful. So I think it's it's a great thing to see moving forward and it's something I know we've talked about on the show and, and those that listen are know I'm a big fan of how we actually reduce capital costs rather than just how do we reduce transaction and reconciliation costs.
2: Yeah, I think that's a valid point, and I'm I'm quite excited by this just because it's Deutsche Börse. Um, I they have some really really smart tech people. Um, so they they won't be blindsided by hype. They won't get excited over nothing. So the fact that they're actually involved in this and interested in this, I think that's quite a positive sign for this project. So um, probably something to keep an eye on.
0: And it really answers a lot of the questions out there about how you regulate these things as well. Um, a, a lot of the early interest was how do you disintermediate and pull out things like an exchange group or a clearinghouse. And this this really clearly shows that, um, back to the point you were talking about just a minute ago, it's incumbents that are in this and rather than being just entrenched and saying this is never going to happen, like we've seen from certain payment uh, messaging services on on the blockchain topics, uh, they're actually saying we want to be involved and we see this as an opportunity for us.
1: For sure. And speaking of our 3 Colin is going to bring you some words for one of our other sponsors.
0: Speaking of R3, today's episode, Blockchain Insider, is also brought to us by Corda. Everybody knows that Corda is an open-source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly and strict privacy, even if they're trying to lend securities. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of trusted intermediaries, or Simon, who happens to be on holiday. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 in collaboration with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology providers. Anthony, I think you were one of them. It is ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with Corda, the platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Corda, go to Corda.com. Net to learn more.
1: So, thanks Colin. On to our next story. This one's from Coinbase this time. This is directly from Coinbase. So they announced yesterday that they are very excited to announce their intention to support the Ethereum ERC20 technical standard for Coinbase in the coming months. And this paves the way for supporting ERC20 assets across Coinbase products in the future though they aren't announcing any support for specific assets or features at this time. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Colin, do you want to take us through why?
0: Yay, Coinbase is supporting shitcoins. Um, what, what are ERC20s? Uh, ERC20 is a technical standard in Ethereum. Um, and what this is most widely known for is all the ICOs that live on Ethereum, uh, hence, hence my joy of shitcoins. Um, they, they aren't actually announcing that they're bringing any ICOs onto their platform today. Um, but this does a couple of interesting things. It allows them to deal with them, to to acknowledge them from a technical point of view. Um, if you are using Ethereum, if you're using Ether, uh, and you happen to have an ICO token in your wallet and you accidentally send it to Coinbase, you may get that little fraction of Ether that you sent it with, um, but you'll have lost your ICO token, which may be worth a ton of money, uh, inside their, their wallets. Um, this allows them to go back and actually recover that and send you your token back so you can go trade your shitcoin elsewhere. Um, in the future, they may actually support some of these, but that isn't really the idea today. Um, they're keeping they're keeping their very strict rules, and I know a lot of people have been speculating which coins may or may not come onto Coinbase because this is still one of the premier places for people to to list. It may not be the biggest in the world, but it's still one of the ones that's viewed as being easy for your average person in, in the United States and in Western Europe to access cryptocurrencies. And uh, every time somebody moves onto to Coinbase uh, as a new listing, uh, they tended to see their prices go up. So uh, right after this announcement came out, I know there was a lot of speculation on which ICO would go on, um, which is, you know, funny and traders going to trade. Uh, but right now, they've been very clear. No, no ERC-20 support on specific assets is happening in the near future. And it will follow their very long, um, well-regulated uh, and hopefully not front-running practices. So
2: I think this could be interesting for another reason. Um, I know that something that we've discussed a few times is if you kind of conceptually look at a DVP, um, an ICO, it kind of looks like a DVP, um, but there are a couple of legs missing, basically all the important ones from a regulatory standpoint, and one of the key ones being KYC. So Coinbase and a lot of the other exchanges moved to kind of much more robust KYC models over kind of recent years, um, certainly in the last kind of few months where um, certain regulators have started to be far stricter. So it could be that if they're looking to start to support this, then maybe that may um, lead them to a future model where when they're talking about technical support of ERC-20, they're able to provide that KYC leg of that overall um, kind of DVP journey because, I mean, they'll still settle in crypto probably rather than fiat, but I guess fiat could always play a part. Um, But yeah, I, I just think that it might start to pull some of those puzzle pieces together.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely an important move for the community. Um, I'm sure they, if they are planning on launching or supporting any of these tokens in the future, they'll be very, very careful about which ones they do and to what standard of regulatory compliance that ICO has launched with. Um, I know they're hiring regulators in London. <laughs> You're welcome, Coinbase. Um, so th- clearly, clearly, this is an important part of their business model. And also the support that you mentioned before, Colin, that's that's a nice feature so that users are able to recover their funds.
0: Yeah, I think helping people fix lost money is always a good thing. Um, you know, it's still a, it's still a pretty scary world out there if you don't know what you're doing and you start trading in ICO tokens. The question I have is Coinbase has been very strict that they don't want to add things that are securities right now. And um, I, I struggle to name even five ERC 20 tokens that aren't very clearly securities. Um, the question is do they become regulated in the US? We call them an ATS or an alternative trading um, alternative trading system. Um, in, in Europe, we call it a multilateral trading trading facility an MTF. Are they going to become regulated as that um, if they start supporting, These hordes and hordes of shit coins that are securities, or do they start um, looking at the other regulatory arbitrage they can do? Maybe they're just going to list their own token, which for whatever reason will magically get around securities law. I don't know. Um, What I do think is actually positive, though. I'm I'm coming off as a very negative vibe here. It does open. It doesn't open uh, the ability to actually, as you say, do the KYC and actually offer ERC twenty tokens as securities to raise money for blockchain-based projects um, that have adhered to the regulations that are starting to emerge and become more clear that still fit into uh, very, very clear US regulations.
1: Yes. So we uh, we watch excitedly to see where Coinbase goes with this. So moving on to our next story. This is from btcmanager.com. Lightning Network gets its first lap from Blockstream. If you're confused about what a lap is, it's a lightning app. So a micropayment processing charge called Lightning Charge was introduced by Blockstream earlier this year to make it easy for web developers to test Blockstream's C-Lightning implementation of the Lightning network. Blockstream also went ahead to unveil Blockstream Store, which is a Lightning-powered e-commerce site built with WooCommerce Lightning Gateway, the first Lightning app to take advantage of the power of lightning charge and a general web com- commerce solution for lightning payments.
0: I can't wait for the first lap coin. Um, <laughs> it, no, this is actually cool. I, I'm, I'm being a bit flippant here. But um, one of the really interesting early use cases of Bitcoin was micropayments. Um, we very quickly understood that Bitcoin at the base layer was not very efficient for micropayments because you need to send the transaction to everybody running a node. And when you have more nodes, um, that becomes much more expensive. Um, Lightning Network essentially builds a second layer on top of that thing that allows you to move transactions around amongst um, a smaller number of parties and only settle at one point in time. Um, So what they've done is they've said, right, you want to buy something that is um, online, is in a digital file store, something like – let's say an mp3 or whatever, and you can actually make that payment using lightning network. Um, this is a really interesting point. Now, the question I have is, because Bitcoin is very good for you know, the huddle use case, uh, I'll hold on to it because I think the price is going to be much higher than it is uh, now at some point in the future when it overtakes central banks or whatever it's going to do. Um, why would I spend it now to go buy a, a you know a top 40 song that's going to be out of favor in three weeks? It doesn't seem like a great trade if you actually believe Bitcoin is going to take over the world.
2: I think that's part of the issue with, and this kind of speaks to the wider point of why there's so many different cryptocurrencies and what I was referring to before. That people keep saying, you know, what's the killer app of blockchain? What's the killer app of cryptocurrencies? Well, we, we keep seeing these killer apps. The problem is none of the platforms really support it. So I'm in complete agreement. You probably wouldn't use Bitcoin. So maybe Lightning's been built on top of the wrong platform. Maybe it should be on something else instead. But absolutely, micropayments is definitely one of those things that hasn't really been solved for. Um, I also like the way that this is almost, um, to a certain extent, feeding into digital rights management as well. Um, I think those two things combined are kind of a a real um, kind of push towards some of the key use cases that blockchain's promised for a long time and not really delivered on. So I guess from a Lightning point of view, perhaps they don't really care too much about HODL. Maybe they're more concerned about the technology, which is... Hopefully, a good sign that maybe some of the hype is starting to die down, and the volatility will go with it, and people will actually start building useful stuff.
1: Yeah, and those uh, the the micro use case is an interesting one because it actually, the implication of that is different business models that allow um, certain things to you know make these very small and potentially quite frequent payments. And obviously, on a, uh, a quite a slow network with large fees, that's not really going to work. So, the Lightning Network. Plays into that quite nicely. Digital rights management is an interesting point that you bring up there, and actually leads us quite nicely. Thank you, into our next story, which is from CoinDesk. Uh, so this one's from CoinDesk. Intel thinks blockchain could power next-gen media rights manager, which is great. Tech giant Intel's joining the growing list of enterprise firms that see blockchain as a way to reimagine digital rights management. In a patent application released on March the 8th by the US Patent and Trademark Office, Silicon Valley tech company described a method for using a blockchain for downloading the rights to digital images, one it believes is unique enough to be protected invention.
2: I guess we'll see. I mean, whether or not it is patentable. Um, I mean, they're Intel, they've got deep pockets. So um, if anyone can do it, they can. And they've got the tech pedigree to argue their side as well. I think that What we need to be careful of with any of the media management type stuff is that it doesn't come too restrictive or too proprietary. Otherwise, you then end up with multiple different systems that are just slightly different um, enough from each other to avoid uh, the patents that someone owns. Um, I mean, we've seen it before. I remember kind of in the early days of the internet when digital media started to be a thing, you'd have to kind of register for something, you'd have to enter passwords. And it was it was a really, really painful process to just watch a video or listen to a piece of music, which is why it didn't really work. And what happened was um, illegal content propagated because it was unrestricted. And that's what you really want. You want that kind of frictionless, um, unrestricted environment where if you own the rights to something, um, like the right to watch something or listen to something then you can do so immediately and the, the system the platform interprets that that's the case and i think that's why potentially um, blockchain could be a strong use case for that certainly public private key cryptography is a strong play for that because of the granularity you can get down to in the permissions
1: yeah and i think it's it's great for the artist to be able to whether it's music or photography, in this case, but it's great for artists to be able to be paid directly for the work they do without all the intermediaries. And as you know, has been discussed a number of times, that's what blockchain is great for—that end to end.
2: Yeah, and I mean, f- photography is a huge one as well. I mean, we saw Kodak a couple of months ago coming out saying they were doing something on blockchain. Whether or not that was substantial or not, I, I guess time will tell. But it kind of made sense, the use case they were looking at. So what do 99% of people do when they need a picture? They jump on Google Image Search, ignore the fact that it says this image may be copyrighted, and then use it for whatever they want to use it for until they get lawyers knocking the door saying, hey, you used my image and you shouldn't have used it. So with this accompanied with micropayments, the ability to make those small value payments in order to consume media, I think you're starting to get to a world where Digital media can be transacted in the same way as physical media. And that's one of the big promises or one of the big early promises of blockchain that hasn't really been realized yet and hopefully can be. So
0: The question I have on this is, is exactly that, like removing the friction, obviously, for somebody who... Um Wants to go out and pay these artists, and and I hope there are lots of people that want to do that. is great. Um, and maybe we don't care if there's students that don't actually have money that are copying images off Google for their their uh, dissertations or whatever it is. But there are a lot of people that. Um, for other reasons, have just decided they're not going to pay for downloading videos, downloading music, whatever it is. And it's not a question of friction. They just don't want to pay for it because they don't see a value in paying for it. And when we live in a world where you can go watch you know, half the movies or listen to every song there that exists on YouTube, does this really change that behavior and say, okay, well, I'm going to go use this thing and have to buy Bitcoin or whatever it is, or uh, plug into somebody's blockchain platform and run a node or rely on somebody to run a node? Uh, To make that payment when I know I can just go to YouTube and do it for free, that's beyond removing friction. That's just the thing that exists is so much easier. And if I really do want to get around it, um, often, uh, speaking of my own experience, often the the thing that ignores these rights is much more uh, frictionless when they've gone out of their way to do something illegal. Um, I'll give you the example. I used to live in North Africa and I had a computer that only played DVDs from North American region where I bought my laptop. Um, but in North Africa, they used a different standard. If I used the, the DVD I paid for, it didn't run. If I used the one that I bought, you know, for two euros down, down in the market, it ran just fine because they removed all of that stuff. They just downloaded something and burned it on a DVD. If we're putting more and more rights, as you say, on top of these things, It does make things more difficult. And I think um, just by virtue of having such a complex system underneath it, it will, by definition, make it more complicated and will make people, I think, even less prone to paying for something that they would otherwise pay for. And that's the key, right? That's where the real rub of this is.
2: It's about that balance. So I think what, Um, commercial entities have to be very careful of is not pushing people to illegal methods in order to fulfill whatever needs they have in regards to their content consumption. And that's been the big problem, right? So when you look at the reason why there was a massive explosion of uh, illegal MP3 downloads, it's because unless you went out and bought a CD and then ripped that CD, you couldn't get access to that media. It wasn't like there was somewhere where you could legally go and just get hold of MP3s. And if you could, it was such an inefficient process. Even now, I think buying MP3s is actually quite tricky unless you're um, an Apple fan, which I'm not. So, um, you know, I don't have iTunes and I don't do that for music. But Spotify, it's great for me. Um, other streaming providers are available. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I like the fact that it's convenient, it's there, but it was really frustrating because also being a huge Taylor Swift fan, I couldn't access Taylor Swift's music for a very long time on Spotify and that was annoying.
1: Uh, but speaking of tech giants, Intel are not the only one interested. So this article is from Bloomberg. Google is working on blockchain-related technology to support its cloud business and head off competition from emerging startups that use the heavily hyped technology I think they're saying blockchain there, to operate online in new ways. The Alphabet Inc. unit is developing its own distributed digital ledger that third parties can use to post and verify transactions. Although the timing of the product release is unclear, at the moment the company plans to offer this to differentiate its cloud service from rivals. So, Colin.
0: Google is an interesting one. Looking at this from cloud is an interesting concept. So a lot of of companies, um, Microsoft, Intel included, have, have... put blockchain as a service on top of their clouds. Uh, I know some other companies have looked at this as well. Um, I, I think there's a bigger play for uh, Google and a lot of people have really speculated on when and how Google would get involved. Um, Google is is a very big cloud provider and they're an even bigger web traffic and advertisement provider. Let's go back to some of the conversations we were having earlier. If you're looking at digital rights, if you're looking at things like ad, if you're looking at making payments, uh, Google is pretty well placed to do a lot of these different things. Now, that said, um, it's a massive departure from how they do business today. Uh, Google is a company that takes a ton of data, organizes that data, and then sells that data back. Um, blockchains, as well, are built to organize data and give it away for free. Um, I'd love to see how those two things merge together. So, uh, this is what I'm going to watch, but I'm not really sure what's going on here quite yet.
2: So, I think it's common sense that they're looking at it because you kind of alluded to the point there. Blockchain's anathema to companies like Google. Because the the whole point is that you send all of your data, you send all of your processing, all of your transactions, everything to Google as your centralized party, and they'll do everything for free. But it's a different value transfer, right? They get your data, as you said, and they repackage it up and sell it onto advertisers. If you look at something like um, Google Docs, this promise of a centralized document that you can edit across multiple parties, you're kind of talking a little bit in the same way as maybe a smart contract. So... Smart contracts are a direct competitor for Google Docs for certain purposes.
0: But there's an interesting point there, if I could just stop you. What if Google Docs, or not Google Docs, but something that felt like Google Docs actually supported the notion of a smart contract?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's companies like ClauseMatch, which are kind of striving towards that that kind of thing. So I don't think ClauseMatch actually touch on blockchain yet. Um, But the idea was that there'd be like a Google Docs for legal agreements. But I think that there's something in that. So rather than this whole code is law nonsense, um, which is nonsense, um, and moving away from that instead towards, you know, what are the practical use cases of something like a smart contract conceptually? What, What is it already used for? How could it be repurposed in a different way? Then you start to take away some of the value added services that companies like Google really depend upon because that's what attracts people to their platform. Ultimately, they just want your data so they can advertise more effectively to you and get other people to sell more stuff to you. If you're taking away their data, you're clamping down their lifeblood and they, they just can't survive.
1: And I don't think it's just about blockchain and taking away the data, although that's clearly it's been it's a technology that's been around for years. So I'm sure they can see the writing on the wall from a technological perspective. But you also have, I mean, look at the regulations like GDPR that's... It's really about transparency and moving data back into the control of the users, and in and in a way, that's a similar kind of um, similar kind of ethos to the the start of well, Bitcoin really, and the start of and, and blockchain technology, going back to the users owning their own data and being able to be in control of where it goes and who sees it and for how long. And I think that's an interesting point about Google Docs and smart contracts. If you had two parties who are entering into a legally enforceable agreement, which smart contracts aren't at the moment on the blockchain, they'd be able to mutually edit these smart contracts and sign the transaction and negotiate effectively within the smart contracts, sign the transaction and at that point, you might be looking at code is law.
2: My point is there that it doesn't need to be code as law. So like it could just be a negotiation of something. It could be a document, a working document that you have across multiple parties. The difference is that you own the data. You don't have any worries about someone else accessing that data because instead there is no centralised entity. It truly has been decentralised away. Um, I I think you're completely right about GDPR. I think that's a major issue. One of my concerns is that when you start to see moves like this, you just end up with an a new boss, same as the old boss situation, where they basically repackage it up, you get a little tick box um, saying, I agree to this, and everyone just ticks it because it's convenient. They never read the terms, conditions. And even with GDPR saying that that needs to be far more explicit, I think, again, it comes back to that convenience factor where people just don't have the time anymore. So let me play
0: devil's advocate on that point. Do you think people are actually going through and doing their due diligence to understand how a blockchain works when they download a blockchain client?
2: No, they didn't, give, they didn't care. No.
0: So is that any better than, you know, Google hosting everything and you just clicking, yeah, I agree to that thing that's actually written in English?
2: No, absolutely not. It depends on what ultimately the platform looks like. So if you're able to enter into a multi-party document, for example, on a an open platform that is not hosted centrally, then that's a slightly different thing to entering into a kind of uh, multi- a, a multi-party editable document on a centralized entity because there's someone that's still hosting that. So if it's hosted between yourselves, that's different between it being hosted by one entity that you're trusting to then not manipulate, not look at, not do anything with that document. Does
0: that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. I, I, I just, I question from the point of view of, yes, there's, there's a question about where that data is domiciled and who can touch it, who can manipulate it. But there's also the question of, do I actually understand what I'm signing? And this was, I mean, the DAO, the DAO, in 2016 was kind of the manifestation of that problem. We had something that was open and you were encouraged to go in and read all the code. The problem was people who had written how that code was actually um, developed, uh, how Solidity, the code behind Ethereum, was written, didn't understand the implications of, of what was happening. And Ultimately, $60 million at the time was flushed out by a hacker that did understand that. Um, I, I think that these things are fantastic, but I, I question whether putting Google behind it, even if there's multiple parties, to go back and make the manipulation when a manipulation should be done, um, but then to have a good audit trail by either saving you know, uh, individual states at a given point, saving a record of where we are today and then tomorrow and the next day isn't a better solution in a lot of use cases than saying, let's decentralize everything.
1: Yeah,
2: I, I don't think we should decentralize everything. I just think there are certain use cases where it becomes applicable.
1: Yeah, thank you. So, from multi-parties onto multi-jurisdiction this story is from news.bitcoin and it's about the g20 so the g20 summit has been taking part uh, taking place in argentina and it has ended with no new cryptocurrency regulation surprise 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 surprise
0: (laughs) well you know yes yes and no i mean a lot of these guys went in um and they're mostly men went in uh, as central bankers and said, you know, we need to clamp down on this. We heard it in Germany, we heard it in France. Uh, They're going to propose something. They went to Argentina, which actually ironically is one of the big users of Bitcoin uh, and one of the early users of Bitcoin as far as uh, different jurisdictions went um, from a retail point of view and decided to come back and go, yeah, there's some risks, there's some concerns, but we don't really want to do anything about it.
1: I think it comes down to, to size really. As Mark Carney said recently, that they're of course they're aware of cryptocurrencies and crypto assets and and the price of bitcoin without a shadow of a doubt but at the moment it's not big enough for them to worry about as we mentioned on last week's show i think uh, the total market cap was of cryptocurrencies was 1% of gdp cds at the time of the crash it was 100% of gdp so what the G20 central bankers have said, is we acknowledge that technological innovation, including the underlying crypto assets, has the potential to improve the efficiency and inclusiveness of the financial system and the economy more broadly. But they go on to say crypto assets do, however, raise issues with respect to consumer and investor protection, market integrity, tax evasion, money laundering and terrorist financing. Crypto assets lack the key attributes of sovereign currencies, Uh, and at some point, they could have financial stability implications kind of,
2: of course, they lack the attributes of sovereign currencies. That was kind of the point of Bitcoin. Um, I, I think the the thing about this um, that I found really interesting was the way that, you know, the various countries voted um, and where the backlash was versus, you know, where the support came from. Um, but it also opens up a much bigger problem for governments. And it's a, a problem that we generally have only seen with large multinationals before. And that's how do you have an inter-jurisdictional Um, approach to these things. So when you were talking earlier on, Colin, about um, what the proposed move to the ERC-20 standard support for Coinbase means in different jurisdictions, Coinbase will struggle to a certain extent to control that because if you're a financial institution and you decide you want to go into a new geography or a new jurisdiction, you go in and you set up just in that jurisdiction and you know that no one else from outside of that jurisdiction is going to be able to access your products and services because you make that the case. um, Coinbase should be able to do that to a certain extent because they KYC their customers. So, you know, they they should be able to put the same controls around that. I think that when you're talking about things like complete open market permissionless cryptocurrencies, that's not the same. So although governments are saying that they want to do this and they potentially want to do that, they can make it far, far more difficult and restrictive in their local markets for people to access it. They can even make it illegal if they want to. Um, However, There's probably going to be different rules or people with um, or companies, entities with different rules in different jurisdictions dictated by their local regulators. And I think a consolidation and overall view of that is probably going to be quite important. Um, So I was hoping for more from the G20, to be honest. I was hoping that there'd be a little bit more agreement, um, naively so, because, you know, there's a lot of people in the room. So, of course, they're not going to agree. Each country has its own individual bit to play
1: for sure and i think potentially that that could be part of the problem with coming forward and saying and saying anything further or more concrete is that there are so many people in the room it's very difficult if you're sitting around a poker table and everyone checks to then make a bet so moving on uh, an article from coindesk polka dots plan for governing a blockchain of blockchains Gavin Wood, Ethereum co-founder and one of the leaders of an upcoming blockchain interoperability protocol called Polkadot, is shaking up the status quo with a newly published playbook that designates management power directly to the token holders. It was distributed in a token sale last year. DOT, the internal token of Polkadot network, allows its holders to vote directly on a piece of code, which will then automatically upgrade across the network a way of bypassing the relationship between developers and nodes, the method is not without its controversy, but according to advocates, it's time to step up from what is on offer in most blockchains today.
0: So, okay, Polkadot, interesting conflict of interest, if we can go that far. A lot of people in, in Ethereum that have been involved in Ethereum for a while have um, pointed out that uh, on-chain governance may not be the right thing for Ethereum. Uh, Vlad Zamfir is one of the the louder critics of it. Um and the reason I say there may be a conflict is because Polkadot is is run by Parody and Gavin Wood, who may have lost a couple hundred million dollars because of a bug in his code, um, and is now uh, trying to install something called an EIP, which is an Ethereum Improvement Protocol, um, which is basically an attempt to recover that money by getting everybody to agree that he should be able to recover that money. Essentially a rollback, um, kind of like when the Dow lost money that he – have been involved in at some point um and this kind of looks like maybe another way to go about doing that so uh, i don't know Uh, i'm not saying he is absolutely trying to do it but uh there may be a conflict maybe
1: it's very interesting concept isn't it giving the um the allowing the holders to vote on a piece of code i.e giving the governance to the holders and not just retaining the governance within a very small group of
0: isn't this exactly what the dao
2: did isn't this the kind of idea of pretty much all of these supposed new chains like Tezos, that was exactly that, mm-hmm. the idea that there'd be governance? Um, they did well.
0: There was a bit of irony in that.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean, governance is their strength.
1: Well, it, it almost goes back to a point we were talking about earlier about do how many people have the technological ability to actually look into the code and work out what's good and bad, what's, what's robust, what's effective, and, and, and what the implications of that might be at the edge cases.
2: It's too much money too early. That's that's the problem with blockchain in general. So there's too much throwing of stuff out there while it doesn't work, which is kind of the way of the world now, right? We throw it out, we A-B test it, we see what works, we see what doesn't, and we change it in a live environment. The problem is that when you're dealing with millions of dollars of assets, that doesn't tend to work quite so well. So I think the idea behind this is actually quite a good one. It's not a particularly original one, but it is a good one. And I think that the idea of um, trying to get away of reaching consensus around governance in a decentralized manner is kind of something useful for open permissionless chains. But whether or not they'll ever get there, I don't know.
0: Don't you just incentivize the people that have more money, hence more tokens, to be able to have a larger sway? And I mean, doesn't that kind of lead you to plutocracy?
2: Well, yeah, but I mean, only if it's in a proof of stake model. And that's the problem with all of this, right? They're always looking at something that basically says, if you've got more money, then you get more votes, which goes back to my point before new boss same as old boss that's kind of
0: how the world works today i mean it's not like we've never seen that inside of you know uh, u.s politics or anything
1: moving on we are we will watch this space and find out what the governing a blockchain of a blockchain really looks like so stories we didn't have the time to cover this one is from cointelegraph so michael owen issues celebrity token who hey. i think that's some kind of football man
0: is that a football man, Colin?
1: Sorry to a lot of us.
0: Don't, don't, don't ask me. Pet's the one that puts these things in. Pet, I know nothing about football. Look at him. Pet, is this a football guy? Oh,
2: he's the 18-year-old. I said Yeah, yeah he he look at you knowing football. Look, no one cares.
1: <laughs> the next story we didn't have time to cover was from Bloomberg. Cryptocurrency-backed habanero peppers is a thing in Mexico.
0: Okay, th- this is a story we actually should have taken time to cover because backing something by really hot chili peppers is probably a great idea. Just go read this article.
1: I'm not really sure backing something by anything that's consumable is a very good idea. Anyway, Cointelegraph. This one is from Cointelegraph. And China filed the most blockchain patents in 2017. And finally, we need to make fun of (laughs) Yahoo.
0: That was my comment, sorry. Yahoo Japan's to launch a cryptocurrency exchange in 2018. Huzzah! Being relevant again, but not quite. It's kind of like Kodak, right?
1: Well, interesting move from Yahoo there.
2: Kodak still make SD cards.
1: So those are all the stories we sadly didn't have time to cover. Moving on to our next segment, which is Tweet of the Week. Tweet,
3: tweet, tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week.
1: Tweet of the Week. So this one is from Joseph Muscat, and his tweet says, Welcome to Malta. Welcome to hashtag Malta, actually, at Binance which is the Chinese exchange. We aim to be the global trailblazers in the regulation of blockchain-based businesses and the jurisdiction of quality and choice for world-class fintech companies.
0: Um, So Joseph Muscat is the prime minister of Malta. Um, So not a nobody, I guess. Um, So we talked about Binance last week on the show, um, and I I bravely made the comment that uh, Binance moving to a DEX or decentralized exchange was because they were trying to do something illegal. A few days later, um, the, the JFSA or the the financial regulator in Japan agreed with me, which is fantastic when Japan agrees with me, um, that in fact, what they were doing was illegal and warned Binance that what they were doing was illegal. Um, Binance, in the next 24 hours, decided to announce to the world that they were voila moving to Malta. Um, so fantastic to Binance for finding a new home. I hear Malta is lovely this time of year, and um, I, I hope that works out well. It's also great to follow laws.
1: Okay, so next up, we bring you a fantastic interview as Colin speaks to Obi Nwosu, CEO and co-founder of CoinFloor. So let's hear from him now.
0: Welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Colin Platt. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Obi Nwosu, CEO and co-founder of CoinFloor. Welcome to the show.
3: Welcome, thank you very much.
0: So had lots of questions about what you guys are doing at CoinFloor. You've had a bit of um, but before we get started in, in getting into the nitty-gritty of that, can you tell our listeners who don't necessarily know about CoinFloor who you are, what you guys do.
3: Okay, so CoinFloor is a group of cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, we focus 100% on institutional and sophisticated investors and traders. Uh, we're probably most well known for our first cryptocurrency exchange, CoinFloor Exchange UK. The story began in 2013 for that, and it's one of the longest running exchanges in the space. And more recently, Coinflow Exchange Gibraltar, and Coinflow X, which is the world's first physically delivered cryptocurrency futures exchange, but we can talk about that more later.
0: I definitely want to have uh, a long discussion on that because that is a really innovative product that uh, would love to, to delve into. So can you tell us specifically why you got into this back in, in 2013?
3: Well, actually in 2011, um, I became aware of cryptocurrency. Um, and as a background, I was for 15 years a basically a geek. Um, I was head of technology for a number of successful um, e-commerce and technology companies. And so I looked at it for a number of months, got very excited, then saw the price plummet and decided not to take the jump. And fast forward two years, um, my soon-to-be co-founder, Mark Lang, came to me with the idea of setting up a cryptocurrency exchange in the UK. And I was just shocked at how far cryptocurrency had come and and I realized that this was something that was going to be as impactful as .com1 and .com2 before it. And the rest was history.
0: And a pretty exciting history it's been. We've been recapping this a lot. Um, so you guys obviously started in the UK. I believe you're, you're one of the few, if not only, um, UK-based exchanges that does Sterling uh, as your main, your main base pair. I know you guys also offer a, a Euro product, so people can buy and sell Bitcoins on your exchange in multiple currencies, with sterling being kind of the original.
3: Yeah. So as I said, we are free exchanges at this point in time, but our first exchange, Coinflow Exchange UK, supports sterling. We're very well known for that. But it also supports euro, USD and and other currencies as well.
0: So can you tell us a, a bit about, you know, what led to this expansion and, and moving outside of the UK? Obviously, UK, very big market in cryptocurrencies. Uh, Gibraltar and BVI's smaller jurisdiction, but I guess also very large global financial centers.
3: It all starts and ends from our philosophy and and as a result, the customers we focus on. So we focus on institutional and sophisticated investors traders, as I said before. And this is quite unusual in the space. But what it means is we have a very focused set of customers from whom we can talk and understand their requirements. Um, and their requirements are quite simple, but hard to achieve. One of them is that they want to see, um, they want to work ideally with a regulated entity and regulation for um, spot-based cryptocurrency exchanges can be, um, or, or exchanges of all forms can be a challenge because it's still it's still changing and, and it's rapidly developing. Um, so the CoinFloor Exchange Gibraltar offering was um, an interesting opportunity because we, we see a number of very exciting things happening in Gibraltar. The regulators, the banks, the, the players in the space are incredibly um, passionate and working very hard to put in this distributed ledger technology um, regulation. And so we wanted to be part of that and hopefully will be one of the first regulators to exchange in that space.
0: Can you talk real quickly, because I think that's a a really interesting, good point, and and you have great experience to talk about this. Uh, Lots of people have said, you know, uh, really unclear what Bitcoin is, how uh, companies working in this, or cryptocurrencies more generally, how companies working in this space are dealing with regulators, being there kind of in the early stages working with Gibraltar, what, what kind of things are you involved in? What are they asking you? Um, what kind of risks are they concerned about? What are things that maybe people would be surprised that they're not concerned about?
3: Well, first of all, in all of our offerings, we, we actively talk to the regulators. So we've been preemptively compliant in, in the UK and talk to the regulators here regularly. No pun intended. Um, and the same is true for um, Gibraltar um, and also for um, our BVI entity. In the case of Gibraltar, they are very concerned and they want to make sure that we have strong policies around KYC and AML um, and CTF. So that's anti-money laundering and countering terrorism financing. Um, so we should, and that comes down to understanding who your customer is, what your customer is, why your customer is using you and and monitoring their usage to make sure that over time their usage seems to fit what they said they were going to do. Um, and we're also starting to see um, more, That's their, that was probably their primary and first concern. But secondarily, there are they want to understand how we, our own compliance processes internally, our own um, internal governance processes, how we are handling the uh, custodianship of our of our customers' cryptocurrency as well as our customers' fiat et cetera so the so the things that you would expect to see for a regulated financial institution the the industry is is growing up and um you're seeing you're going to see continue to see that change over the coming years
0: it's very positive to hear that um it it's not coming back to kind of these early stage things and and you are actually able to have a productive thing and, and good things are coming out of it. Specifically, I want to jump into to this futures product. So as you said up, up at the top here, innovative product, first time somebody's done physically settled futures. Um, we know that uh, some of the big incumbents in Chicago, the, the CME, the CBO have launched financially settled. Um, so the difference between these, these are, they're both derivatives products, they're both futures uh, that trade on an exchange. At the CME, at the CBO, we need to settle in, in dollars for um, whether I made money or lost money. Whereas what you guys allow people to do is not settle in dollars, but settle in the cryptocurrency that you're actually trading on.
3: Well, we actually allow people to settle in 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 both or either or either. So there, the first type of cryptocurrency futures offering um, were um, I would call crypto settled futures, um, and they were ones where you would deposit cryptocurrency, trade. And then at the end, you would settle in cryptocurrency. So the next that we saw come at the end of last year were cash or fiat settled futures, where you'll deposit U.S. dollars, for example, um, take a view as to, take a position as to the future price of the cryptocurrency and um, decide to go long or short, i.e. to determine to buy or sell a certain amount at a certain price. And at the end, um, at the point of settlement, there will be a view of the market based on an index of spot exchanges, and you would pay the difference whether you were correct or not. With physically settled, it's actually the easiest to understand. Um, and conceptually, you're saying that at the beginning, I have, I'm have, i making a commitment to sell um, or buy a certain amount of cryptocurrency at a certain price. And at settlement, we don't have to check what the market price is and convert it back to crypto or to fiat. We just simply deliver what we said we were going to deliver, or we expect to be delivered what we, um, the, the, the cryptocurrency that we expect to be delivered, and we pay the amount. You can replicate, because we allow people to um, deposit collateral throughout the um, futures contract in either fiat or crypto, it is possible to replicate both a crypto-delivered future or a physically delivered future. Or if you're actually someone who has this a commercial use case, which we're trying to engender um, and promote because uh, it brings stability to, to the whole market, then you will actually, for example, if you're a miner, you will actually want to deliver the cryptocurrency and receive the cash to cover costs like salaries of your staff um, or taxes or um, electricity bills.
0: I don't even want to ask how complicated that treasury management is because I'm sure that it's absolutely just amazingly exotic and fascinating to get in and look at the numbers.
3: No, but please please do ask because I want to tell you how we spent two years on it. So... It would be nice spending some time explaining how difficult it was to do. Because this is the interesting thing. Conceptually, it's easier to understand. But technically um, and administrative, administratively and operationally, it's a much more complicated to implement, which is probably one of the reasons why um, it was one of the last to appear. We, As I said, we've been working on it for two years. And um, there are... There are a number of things you need to do in terms of managing the risks around futures, managing, being able to handle custodianship in not only fiat, but in cryptocurrency, which if you've come from the traditional realm might be um, concerning or challenging for you. We've been doing it, as I said, we're one of the longest running um, cryptocurrency exchanges in the world at this stage. And um, we have a very unique policy around custodianship of cryptocurrency, which happy to talk about later and it's it's near unique in the space and not many people have such a draconian policy around um cryptocurrency storage but all these things are prerequisites of being able to offer this service which conceptually is very simple once it's implemented
0: and and we'll get into that but just just for the people that are wondering about why we why we're really harping on the the cash settled versus the physically settled why why is it important to have physically settled? Obviously you have you have people that have physical, but why why is that different than being able to just trade the dollars?
3: So ultimately any financial product in in one way or another is around managing risks and you want to minimize the risks that you have. And um cash settled or crypto settled futures have a set of risks that physical physically delivered futures don't have. Um and one of the one of the biggest comes around the point of settlement. Uh, with cash or crypto settled futures, at the point of settlement, you have to go back to the market and determine the actual price at settlement. Now, that point of settlement is known in advance, and it's a very short time window. And you you open yourself up to the risk of major price moves and potentially um, price manipulation at the point of settlement to whoever's manipulating the prices favor, and to your detriment, with um, and that's a risk which you then have to take into account, and it's very hard to quantify, and therefore it, it means that you have wider margins. You have to; it's a it's a more risky product to trade if you're a trader or or hedging or whatever you're doing. With physically delivered futures, that risk doesn't materialize because you are delivering the actual asset at the end. You don't really care what the price is at the point of settlement. If it isn't the price you like, you have the physical asset at the end if you were looking to go long, or you have the cash at the end if you're looking to go short, and you can wait for the price to move in the direction that you want, which completely obviates the, or removes the um, desire to manipulate the market. There are other interesting um, issues as well. Again, if you're looking at commercial use cases, which we we believe in the future of cryptocurrencies to be used for commercial purposes, then you're, going to, um, if, then you're going to actually want to have the other side. So either you're someone who's a supplier and you want to hedge your risk to, cover your, to make sure you've covered your costs of running your business, so your, your electricity costs and, and um, employee costs, etc. Um, at, then at the point of settlement, if you're using one of the other products, you will not actually get back. You'll put in Bitcoin, you'll get back Bitcoin, and then you'll have to go back to the spot market and sell the Bitcoin again to actually get the cash because that's what you wanted all along. Now, the risk here is slippage. If you, if you have a large amount of um, cash at the end, um, crypto at the end and you want to sell it on the spot market, then price could move as you sell because people see this large order to sell and they start reducing the price because they, they know that you have a need to sell. For example, again, if you had physical delivery at the end, you receive the cash. There's no secondary action you need to take. So two large risks around slippage and um, price manipulation are are, are removed.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people here who have traded cryptocurrencies or at least watch the prices probably can fully understand that the prices can be quite volatile. And um, the, the idea that if you have a large order, it might uh make or lose a lot more money than you necessarily expected when you compare it with something else can can we talk a bit about institutional clients in this this idea you brought up a couple of times custody what are you guys doing about custody what is custody why is that important and what are institutional clients and traders look at
3: okay well custody is quite simply um um taking a hold of and and looking after um, some sort of assets on behalf of of someone else, and in the case of cryptocurrencies, we are taking custody of the of our institutional clients' crypto to allow them to trade on our exchange. Um, so, in terms of what we do with cryptocurrency, from day one, we've done two things which we believe are essential and, unfortunately, not very common in the market. So one is we have a 100 percent multi-signature cold storage policy. Now it's a lot of, lot of adjectives, but what it means, if I break it down, we use code storage. So that means that uh, the keys think of them as long passwords, which allow you to create transactions to, or to spend transactions for um, crypto that you're holding are always are created and stored offline and never connected to an internet-connected device. Uh, we believe this is our zeroth assumption that this is the only truly secure way to store cryptocurrency. And if we're storing it on behalf of clients, we, we think it's important to only do it that way. Um, we do this for 100% of the crypto that we're holding on behalf of our clients. Many other exchanges have some or 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 all of their cryptocurrency stored in hot wallets, i.e., the keys, the, the p- effectively think of them as long passwords, are allowed to spend at the crypto, are in some parts stored online. The risk with that is if if this online device gets hacked, then people can um, get away with the cryptocurrency, and and all cases of where there's been a successful hack of an exchange have always involved. The hot wallet portion of of um, the currency, um, and finally, it's multi signature, um, and this is a policy whereby no one single person can spend the, the currency. It requires multiple keys to create a transaction to be able to spend. So that's one policy which we have, which is is pretty unique um, to the space. The other is since since we've launched for our Bitcoin um, for our Bitcoin. Um, for our customers that we hold in custody, we have monthly provable solvency audits. Now this came about um, where it has been shown it's technically possible to perform a public audit of your cryptocurrency holdings while still um, um, maintaining the privacy of your customers. And because it's technically possible to do, we feel it's important to do. So since we launched nearly five years for, uh, ago with our first cryptocurrency exchange, and it, the same as is going to be the case with our two new cryptocurrency offerings. We perform monthly um, cryptocurrency audits and we publish them on on our website for all to see and to review historically as well to make sure that we um, publicly are held to account for um, holding the custody of our, our customers' crypto.
0: Can we just dial, delve into that? Because I think for a lot of people, that'll be a new idea. So um, we know that in a blockchain, so let's take Bitcoin as an example or, or Ether's, public networks. Um, you could very simply say, look, I control keys for this address. You could write a signature to a blockchain, meaning you essentially go into your account and say, I can publish a cryptographic proof that anybody can see that says I have the keys to this without showing you that really long password, as you, you very succinctly put it. But if I do that, if you, the exchange does that, people will see you have X number of Bitcoin and Ether in, in that wallet and that might show somebody that shouldn't see that information exactly where it is. Um, what, what can you show? How does this work? How does this process show that?
3: It does require you to show the balances you have. So um, we as an exchange are revealing um, the balances we are storing on for our customers behalf as a snapshot on a monthly basis. Um, but what it doesn't show you is how much is stored by each particular customer. Um, separately, we create a um, a effectively a report showing the balances of each individual customer, um, obfuscated, and we provide a key for each one, which can only only one line can be decoded by any particular customer. So, although you can see um, all customers' balances, you will only be able to decrypt and verify your own line. Now, the idea being that because everybody has the ability to, with information that only they, they have access to, and we know that only they have access to, decrypt and verify their own line, it means that anybody can do it. And so we have to make available the balances um, in this report for every user because we don't know who is actually going to take advantage of that. And also, because we publish them, even if they don't check their balances. Now, in five years, they can go back and check all their previous balances in the last five years. Um, so it's an ever-present threat that we could be shown that we didn't f- show full audits of the accounts of all of our customers.
0: And that's pretty novel, because I know some of the other exchanges, especially some of the, the very big exchanges out there, are, have been accused of not being as transparent as maybe they should be. Um, so I think it's it's a very strong and, and brave move to go out and be that transparent, especially at the risk, as you say, at some point in the future, somebody could say, "Well, this number was off, so you you didn't have a hundred percent."
3: Yeah, I mean, and I think um, when we started, it w- we didn't realize how big a commitment that would be in terms of our time, um, but it, and it is an extremely large commitment. But uh, the end result is it's it's over five, and we're doing it over five years and uh, approaching five years as led to the customer base that we are looking to focus on um, building up trust for us um, trust because we've kept our word, but also trust because they don't need to trust us because they can see it on a monthly basis um, that we are solvent. We are storing all the crypto we say we are storing. So it's, it's in the long run, been a very, very good, um, um commitment.
0: Excellent. Can we try and shift gears here and, and look ahead? Um, what do you see happening in, in the industry? Uh, what's new? What's exciting? What do you guys want to focus on? And what what do you think is happening more widely? Okay.
3: Well, the, the short answer is institutional um, involvement. And that's what we want to focus on. We want to be part of that happening.
0: So this is uh, pen- pension funds, hedge funds, uh, more traditional asset managers, as well as maybe corporates and those types of things when we say institutions?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's... Um, uh, four classes that we focus on. So there are at this point in time, but over time there will be more, larger and larger uh, institutional players will enter the market. So currently, the four institutional and sophisticated investor slash trader uh, markets we focus on are hedge funds, and these are entering the market because they've they've had pretty anemic returns over the last twelve to eighteen months in the traditional financial space and they are looking for, um, to add to their portfolio of investments an offering which will slightly redress that balance. Then there are high net worth investors. They're interested for similar reasons, but also furthermore, you're seeing the emergence of the millennial high net worth for, uh, who are far more, to use a phrase, um, digitally native. They're more comfortable Investing in things like cryptocurrency versus real estate and stocks, etc. Third, you've got traders, professional traders, who are attracted to cryptocurrency because of its it's far more transparent. There's uh, the volatility is interesting to them, and it's there's a significant opportunities to profit from that. And then finally, one that's I personally find really exciting is uh, you're seeing the emergence of the commercial uh, suppliers and buyers of cryptocurrency. So on the supplier side, it's people like miners and verifiers, etc., who have this reg, who incur costs in, in fiat, but generate revenues in cryptocurrency. And on the buyer side, that is still at an embryonic stage. But what we predict over the coming months and years is that that's going to increase where more and more people will, need cryptocurrency almost like a fuel to power their smart contracts or their businesses. And they won't be seeing it as a currency in its own right, but as a fuel for their business, um, for their business to be successful. And they, again, so these are the four sectors that we're seeing. Now, historically, over the last um, three, four, five years, it's been a heavily retail-focused space. And we're really interested in retail in the, in the big picture, but as a business, we think for cryptocurrency to reach the next stage, we really need to bring in the sort of the large volumes of institutional liquidity um, that is currently sitting on the sidelines, waiting for a certain number of product services and, and, and events to, be, to come into place. And that will actually stabilize the entire market, which will be for the benefit of everybody, institutional and, and retailer alike
0: and and that's a really interesting theme that we've been hearing from a lot of people we've spoken to there there is a lot of interest um Uh, people that want to get into it but for whatever reason they're locked out of these and you guys have done an excellent job in in working on servicing this this new brand of clients that wants to get into cryptocurrency uh, feels that it's either not regulated properly or the institutions aren't regulated properly more more specifically or the security and controls aren't there so uh, bravo to you guys for working on tackling this problem and, and a real problem as it exists in cryptocurrency um, can you tell people where they can find out more about what you guys do if they're interested in, in working with you or just understanding a bit more?
3: Yeah, no problem. So it's very easy. You can go to our site, coinfloor.com. That's coin as in Bitcoin and floor as in tradingfloor.com. C-O-M.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on the show today.
3: No problem. Thank you very much, Colin.
0: Great
1: to hear from Ob and what Coinfloor team are up to. So thanks to him and also to my guest Anthony Macy and, of course, Colin G. Platt in France. Where can people find out more about you, Anthony?
0: Um, At Anthony Macy on Twitter.
1: Great. And Colin, how about yourself?
0: Uh, In a field in France or on Twitter at Colin G. Platt.
1: Great. And for me, you can find me on Twitter at Seronimo. Also the company I work for at Clearmatics or Climatics.com, and do get in touch because we are hiring. Also, I have to thank the amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, and Michael Bailey, our editor, and our assistant producer, Petrit Berisha.
0: 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize your blockchain projects or you just have a speaker at your next event, including Patrick that can tell you about his trip to the moon, we hope that you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11fs.com, to find out more.
1: Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so much. And spread the word. Tell all your friends and your colleagues to listen too. We will have more on Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.